Chapter 35 The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth Mountaineer, Scout, and Pioneer and Chief of the Crow Nation of Indians Written from his own dictation by T.D. Bonner This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The last dispatches I bore from Fort Leavenworth were addressed to California, and I had undertaken to carry them through. At Santa Fe, I rested a week, and then, taking an escort of fifteen men, I started on my errand. On our arrival at the village of Abiger, we found a large party of Apaches, who were in the midst of a drunken carousal. We encamped inside the corral, that being as safe a place as we could select. Little Joe, an Apache chief, inquired of me what I was going to do with these whites. I'm going to take them to California, I told him. No, said he, you shall never take them nearer to California than they are now. Well, I shall try, said I. He held some farther conversation with me of a denunciatory character, and then left me to return to the liquor shop. Foreseeing what was likely to result in more liquor was obtained, I visited every place in town where it was kept, and informed every seller that, if another drop was sold to the Indians, I would hang the man that did it without a minute's delay and I would have been as good as my word, for they were all Mexicans, and I had felt no great liking for them since the awful tragedy at Teos. But the priest began one or two in expostulation. But I cut them short. I'll hang your priest just as soon as any of you, I said, if he dares to interfere in the matter. I suppose they intended to urge that their priest had authorized them to sell liquors to the Indians. My interdict stopped them, for there was no more sold while I was there. The next day I saw Little Joe in one of the low saloons. The stimulus of the liquor had left him, and he had what toppers call the horrors. He begged me to let him have one dram more, but I refused. Whiskey, I said, puts all kinds of nonsense into your head. You get drunk, and then you are ripe for any mischief. When he had become perfectly sober, he came to me and again asked if it were true that I intended taking those whites to California with me. I told him that it was perfectly true. Well, said Joe, if you attempt... It will kill your whole party, and you with them. You will never listen to us. Your ears are stopped. We all love you, but we have told you many times that we hate the whites, and do not want you to lead them through our hunting grounds, and show them our paths. But you will not listen to us, and now, if you undertake to pass through that cannon, we will, without fail, kill you all. Well, I replied, 
I shall certainly go, so you had better get your warriors ready. We packed our animals, and I directed my men to travel slowly while I went through the cannon. If I wished them to advance, I would climb up and show myself to them as a signal for them to rush through, and reach me as soon as possible. I then went on all alone, as I knew that, if I encountered Indians in the cannon, they would not kill me by myself. I passed through without meeting any, and I signaled to the men to come on. They soon joined me, and we issued upon the open prairie. Here, we discovered three hundred Apaches, each man leading his warhorse. We numbered eighteen, two of whom were Mexicans. They did not offer to attack us, however, and we continued our route unmolested, although they kept on our trail for twenty miles. A little before dark, we rested to take supper, starting again immediately after the meal was finished. We saw no more of the Apaches. The following afternoon, a Utah came to us. I asked him where his village was. He did not know, he said, as he had been away some time. I was going out to shoot game at the time, and I took the Indian with me, lending him a gun belonging to one of my men. I had killed two or three wild turkeys when my Indian, discovering deer some distance off, went in pursuit. I returned to the camp, but the fellow had not arrived. When we started in the morning, he had not shown himself. The second day after the disappearance of the Indian with my gun, I was some distance in advance of the party. When, on ascending a hill, I saw a large party of Utahs ahead. They were looking down and examining the trail very closely to see if we had passed. This convinced me that the Indian fugitive had lied to me, that he knew well where his village was, and had, no doubt, been sent out from it as a spy. We held on our way till we came up with them, and, it being then about noon, we halted to take a long rest. The Indians soon came flocking round us, but I gave strict orders to the men to keep a good lookout and upon no account let them touch the firearms. They swarmed round the camp, entering it one at a time, and I determined to make the first troublesome advance an excuse for getting rid of them. We packed up and moved on through the whole mass of Indians, but they did not venture an attack, although it had been their intention to do so, if they could have got any advantage over us through our negligence. They were embittered against the whites at that time on account of a severe whipping that had been recently inflicted upon two of their warriors by Chateau, who had just passed through them for a theft from his camp. To receive a whipping, especially at the hands of a white man, is looked upon by them as a lasting infamy and they would prefer death to the disgrace. The next morning they overtook us again, and the Indian returned me my gun. 
I mollified them with a few trifling presents, and they finally left us on apparently good terms. The next hostile country that lay upon our road was that of the Navajo tribe. They followed us through their whole strip of territory, shouting after us and making insulting gestures. But they took the precaution to keep out of gunshot range, and I did not think it worth my while to chastise them. The next tribe on our route was the Paioches, which is also the last before you reach Pueblo in California. The first Paioches that we came across were an Indian and his squaw engaged in digging roots. On seeing us approach, the Indian took to his heels, leaving the squaw to take care of herself. I rode up to her and asked her where her village was. She pointed in the direction of it, but I could not see it. The next one that I saw stooped and concealed himself in the grass. Immediately he found himself observed. But I rode up to him and made him show himself, not wishing to have him think that he could escape our notice so easily. He accompanied me for a short distance until another of the tribe shouted to him from a hill. He then left me. We encamped that night upon the prairie. At dusk we observed the smoke of campfires in every direction, and shortly we were visited by hundreds of Indians, who entirely hemmed us in. But on their finding that we were not Mexicans, they did not offer to molest us. They were hostile on account of the continual abductions of their squaws and children, whom the Mexicans employ as domestic slaves, and treat with the utmost cruelty. We reached our destination in safety, and I delivered my dispatches. I was now inactive for some time again, and occupied my leisure in rambling about the environs of Monterey. I then engaged in the service of the commissariate at Monterey, to carry dispatches from thence to Captain Denny's ranch, where I was met by another carrier. On my road lay the mission of St. Miguel, owned by a Mr. Reed, an Englishman, and, as his family was a very interesting one, I generally made his home my resting place. On one of my visits, arriving about dusk, I entered the house as usual, but was surprised to see no one stirring. I walked about a little to attract attention, and no one coming to me, I stepped into the kitchen to look for some of the inmates. On the floor, I saw someone lying down, asleep as I supposed. I attempted to arouse him with my foot, but he did not stir. This seemed strange, and my apprehensions became excited, for the Indians were very numerous about and I was afraid some mischief had been done. I returned to my horse for my pistols. Then, lighting a candle, I commenced a search. In going along a passage, I stumbled over the body of a woman. I entered a room and found another, a murdered Indian woman, who had been a domestic. 
I was about to enter another room, but I was arrested by some sudden thought which urged me to search no farther. It was an opportune admonition, for that very room contained the murderers of the family, who had heard my steps and were sitting at that moment with their pistols pointed to the door, ready to shoot the first person that entered. This they confessed subsequently. Thinking to obtain farther assistance, I mounted my horse and rode to the nearest ranch, a distance of 24 miles, where I procured 15 Mexicans and Indians and returned with them the same night to the scene of the tragedy. On again entering the house, we found 11 bodies all thrown together in one pile for the purpose of consuming them, for on searching further, we found the murderers had set fire to the dwelling. But according to that providence, which exposes such wicked deeds, the fire had died out. Fastening up the house, we returned immediately back to the ranch from which I had started with my party, making 72 miles I rode that night. As soon as I could obtain some rest, I started, in company with the Alcalde, for St. Louis Obispo, where it was believed we could get assistance in capturing the murderers. Forty men in detached parties, moving in different directions, went in pursuit. It was my fortune to find the trail, and with my party of six men, I managed to head off the suspected murderers so as to come up with them in the road from directly the opposite direction from Reed's house. When I came opposite, one of the men sang out, Good day, senors. I replied, but kept on riding in a lope. The bandits, thrown entirely off their guard, insisted upon entering into conversation so I had a fair opportunity of marking them all and discovering among them a horse belonging to the unfortunate Reed. I then rode to Santa Barbara, a distance of 40 miles, and with a party of 20 men started boldly in pursuit. After much hard travel, we finally came upon the gang and camped for the night. Without a moment's hesitation, we charged on them and gave a volley of rifles, which killed one and wounded all the others, save an American named Dempsey. The villains fought like tigers, but were finally mastered and made prisoners. Dempsey turned state's evidence. He stated that, on the night of the murder, his party stopped at Reed's that Reed told them that he had just returned from the mines, whereupon it was determined to kill the whole family and take his gold, which turned out to be a pitiful sum of $1,000. After the confession of Dempsey, we shot the murderers, along with the state's evidence, and thus ended the lives of two Americans, two Englishmen, and ten Irishmen they having committed the most diabolical deed that ever disgraced the annals of frontier life.
I continued in this service of carrying dispatches some four months, varying my route with an occasional trip to San Francisco. At this time, society in California was in the worst condition to be found, probably in any part of the world to call it civilized. The report of the discovery of gold had attracted thither lawless and desperate characters from all parts of the earth, and the government constituted for their control was a weaker element than the offenders it had to deal with. The rankest excesses were familiar occurrences, and men were butchered under the very eyes of the officers of justice, and no action was taken in the matter. What honest men there were became alarmed, and frequently would abandon the richest placers for their mere security of their lives, and leave a whole community of rowdies to prey upon each other. Disorder attained its limit, and some reactionary means would naturally be engendered as a corrective to the existing evils. The establishment of diligence committees among the better order of citizens operated as a thunderbolt upon the conniving civil officers and the rank perpetrators of crime. Scores of villains were snatched from the hands of those mock officers and summarily strung up to the limb of the nearest tree. Horse and cattle thieves had their necks disjointed so frequently that it soon became safe for a man to leave his horse standing in the street for a few moments while he stepped into a house to call upon his friend, and that widely practiced business was quickly done away with. Such sudden justice overtook murderers, robbers, and other criminals that honest people began to breathe more freely and acquired a sense of security while engaged in their ordinary pursuits. The material for crime still existed and is yet present in California to an alarming extent, but order may be considered as confirmed in the supremacy, though inevitably many social evils still exist, which time alone will remedy. In the month of April 1849, the steamship California touched at Monterey she being the first steam vessel that had visited there from the States. I, with a party of fifteen others, stepped on board and proceeded as far as Stockton, where we separated into various parties. I left with one man to go to Sonora, where we erected the first tent and commenced a business in partnership. I had carried a small lot of clothing along with me, which I disposed of to the miners at what now seems to me fabulous prices. Finding the business thus profitable, I sent my partner back to Stockton for a farther supply, and he brought several mules laden with goods. This lot was disposed of as readily as the first, and at prices equally remunerative. This induced us to continue the business, he performing the journeys backward and forward, and I remaining behind to dispose of the goods and attend to other affairs. 
Sonora was rapidly growing into a large village, and our tent was replaced with a roomy house. I had a corps of Indians in my employ to take charge of the horses left in my care by the miners and other persons, sometimes to the number of two hundred at once. I also employed Indians to work in the mines. I furnished them with board and implements to work with, and they paying me with one half of their earnings. Their general yield was from five to six ounces a day each man, a moiety of which they faithfully rendered to me. Among my earliest visitors was a party of 18 United States Dragoons, who came to me to be fitted out with citizens' clothing, as they had brought to a sudden period their service to their country. It was an impossible thing at that time to retain troops in California, for the produce of the mines held out a temptation to desert that none seemed able to resist, as more gold could be dug sometimes in one day than would pay a private for a year's service in the army. Even officers of considerable rank not unfrequently threw aside epaulet and sash and shouldered the pick to repair to the diggings. While at Sonora, I learned that Colonel Fremont was at Mariposa, and I made a journey over there for the purpose of seeing him. I was disappointed in my expectation, and started to return home again. While proceeding quietly along, having left the main road and taken up a hollow, I perceived two men approaching me from the opposite direction, running at the top of their speed, and a crowd of Indians after them in pursuit. When they came up, they shouted to me to turn and fly for my life, or the Indians would certainly massacre me. I bade them stop and quiet their fears. Seeing my self-possession, notwithstanding the near approach of the Indians, they at length halted, and approached close to me for protection against their pursuers. I then commanded the Indians to stand, telling them that they were my men. They said they were not aware of that, or they should not have chased them. The Indians I was acquainted with, they had been frequently to my house to invite me to their village. They wished to purchase goods of me, and had promised me a mule load of gold dust if I would only supply them with what they were in need of. I accompanied them to their village, but my two rescued companions were not admitted into their lodges. They then renewed their promise of the mule load of gold dust if I would bring out the goods they wanted. I never went to them, although it was remiss in me for they had a great quantity of gold dust. I left after a brief visit and rejoined the two men. They could not sufficiently express their gratitude to me for their deliverance, as they considered my opportune appearance alone saved their lives. Becoming tired of my business in Sonora, for an activity fatigued me to death, I disposed of my interest in it for $6,000 and went on to Sacramento City with the money in my pocket. 
From this place, I traveled on to Murderer's Bar, which lies on the middle fork of the American River. Here I found my old friend Chapineau housekeeping and stayed with him until the rainy season set in. Thence I proceeded to Greenwood Valley to establish my winter quarters, but I was seized with an attack of inflammatory rheumatism, and I had a nice time of it that winter. Before I was able to get about, I was called on by the inhabitants to go several miles to shoot a grizzly bear, and as I was unable to walk the distance, several of them volunteered to carry me. The bear was in the habit of walking past a row of cabins every morning on his return to his den, he having issued forth the preceding night to procure his evening meal. They had fired several shots at Bruin as he passed, but he had never deigned to pay any attention to the molestation. I mounted a horse and rode some distance along his customary path, until I came to a tree which offered a fair shelter to await his approach. I placed my back against it as a support while I awaited his coming, the neighbors drawing off to a safe distance to witness the sport. By and by, Grizzly came in sight, walking along as independently as an alderman-elect. I allowed him to approach till he was within twenty paces. When I called out to him, he stopped suddenly and looked around to ascertain whence the sound proceeded. As he arrested himself, I fired, and the ball entered his heart. He advanced ten or fifteen paces before he fell. The observers shouted to me to run, they forgetting in their excitement that I had not strength to move. The bear never stirred from where he fell, and he expired without a groan. When dressed, he weighed over fourteen hundred pounds. The grizzly bear is a formidable animal and has acted a prominent part among the settlers of California. They are seldom known to attack a man unless wounded. In that case, if a tree is by, the hunter had better commence climbing. There are very plenty from the Sierra Nevada to the coast range of mountains. I have, in the course of my sojourn in the country, killed a great many of them and met with some singular adventures. On one occasion, while I was with the Crow Indians, there was a man of the name of Co who was trapping in one of the neighboring streams, and I became alarmed for his safety, as Blackfoot parties were skulking about in all directions, and were sure to kill him if they should find his camp. I found Co and told him my fears. He instantly gathered up his traps and, mounting his horse, started toward me. When within fair gunshot, an old bear sprang from a thicket and landed upon the flanks of his horse, applying his teeth to the roots of the poor animal's tail and holding him as if in a vice. Coe leaned over his horse's neck and cried out, Shoot, Jim! Shoot quick! I could not help laughing to have saved my life, as he turned from side to side, though his situation was a critical one. 
I soon got in a favorable position and put a ball in the animal's head, just behind the ear, when he liberated the horse and his rider, falling on his back, apparently stone dead. There is a story, remembered by the mountaineers, of a person named Kier. He was a man who never exceeded 100 pounds in weight, but was clear grit what little there was of him. He went out one day alone, and his horse came back in the evening without his rider, and we thought that the Indians had made sure of poor Kier's scalp. The next morning, a small party of us started on the horse's trail and found Kier laying beside a large dead grizzly bear. Kier was horribly mutilated and insensible, but still alive, and must have soon died if no one had come to his rescue. We took him to camp and nursed him with all possible care. When he recovered sufficiently to tell his tale, his story was received with shouts of laughter and was rehearsed as a wonderful joke from camp to camp. Kier stated that, when he saw the grizzly, he got from his horse to shoot him, but unfortunately only wounded the animal. The bear, so Kier says, caught hold of him and commenced a regular rough-and-tumble fight. Finally, Kier got a good lick at the bear's head, knocked him down with his fist, and then attempted to run away. The bear, however, was too quick when Kier, becoming desperate, seized the beast by the tongue, drew his knife, and stabbed the creature to the heart. Improbable, as is the tale, it was a singular fact that when Kier was found, his knife was up to the maker's name in the bear's side, and the body showed the effects of other severe stabs. But whether a man weighing 90 pounds could knock down the best of boxers weighing 1,200, the reader can decide. But Kier ever told the same tale and became known far and near as the man that whipped the grizzly in a stand-up fight. Probably no man ever recovered who received so many wounds as did Kier in this unequal combat. End of chapter 35